And the image that I often have in my mind with that, Mark, is if I asked you to hold your two arms out in front of you and I dropped a 30 kilo bag of sand and cement into your arms from six feet up, you'd probably be seeing the shoulder surgeon the next day. But if you interlocked your arms or your hands with maybe three or four or five other people, and then I did the same thing, it would almost be unremarkable you almost wouldn't notice the impact of it because you would be sharing that load so easily and so evenly among you. And for me, that's what social connection and social relationship does. I'm Dr. Mark Rowe, and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits, and leadership practices focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine, and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly, and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. As a practicing family doctor with expertise in lifestyle as medicine, My purpose is to encourage and support you in terms of positive health, personal growth, and all things well-being. As I say, to never stop starting. Each month on a live webinar, I teach learning by doing and learning by being. The why and the how of health-enhancing habits, giving you the science as well as support strategies to live with more vitality. I'd like to invite you to join my self-development club. To learn more and to sign up, visit drmarkrow.com. Today in the doctor's chair, I'm really delighted to welcome Simon Matthews. Simon is the CEO of Well Coaches Australia and Well Coaches Singapore School of Health Coaching. As a psychologist and fellow of the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine, Simon writes and consults widely in the areas of health coaching, behavioral change, positive psychology and lifestyle medicine. When not working, Simon tells me that he loves talking about his other passions in life, including being a pilot, barista, gardener, and self-taught cook. Welcome, Simon, to the doctor's <laughs> chair. Thank you, Mark. That was a very kind introduction. Thank you. Simon, let's kick this off for our listeners. What is mm. health coaching? Great question, Mark. And I think to start with, we can turn to a definition, if you like, from the National Board for uh, Health and Wellbeing Coaching in the United States. And their definition is that health coaching is a process in which uh, coaches partner with clients who are looking to enhance their own health and well-being through self-directed lasting changes. And the self-directed is important and we can come back Mm. to that. The other important part of this definition is that those changes are aligned with the person's values. And that definition goes on to mention some of the specific characteristics that coaches uh, ought to be displaying. For example, unconditional positive regard uh, towards patients, which is a very old concept that that goes uh, all the way back to the work of uh, Carl Rogers much earlier in the uh, 20th century. And and a fundamental belief in a person's ability to, uh, to engage in a process of change and to begin to make some change. And it's probably important there to separate that definition from ideas like 
you know, a person has everything that they need within them to be able to make the changes they want. That's not the idea that's embedded in this definition. We, we all need a helping hand sometimes. Mm. We all need an injection of knowledge or an injection of skill or, or something like that. But the idea of coaching is that it's not a... It's not a practitioner directed and it's not an it's not an advice forward means of supporting people. We don't immediately go in telling people what to do or what they should do. Mm. Um, listening, but understanding and then beginning to collaborate with the person. I was just going to say, uh, you're absolutely right, Simon. I mean, one of the things I've learned as a doctor is that People don't like being told what to do. As adults, we like to make up our own mind, minds and mm -hmm. certainly we can be inspired and we can be influenced and encouraged and supported. But and making changes isn't easy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, 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 you've touched on one of the central tenets of coaching or good coaching, effective coaching there, Mark, that, that we don't. Uh, we don't like being told what to do, and this, of course, goes all the way back to childhood. Anyone who has who has ever had a child, or anyone really who has ever been a play, been in a playground, will probably be able to recall a, a child saying, "You're not the boss of me," mm. uh, and, and that that phrase embodies the idea of autonomy. It it embodies the idea that that one of the things that we fundamentally prize as human beings is the capacity to make a choice about what we do, when we do it, how we do it, and importantly, why we do it as well. Yeah, and I think that's really one of the opportunities of bringing that kind of lifestyle medicine approach with some positive psychology into the medical consultation is that you you just tune more into the person in terms of their capacity to direct their own changes with with support. And, you know, because mm. if you think about it in the world, Simon, people know often what to do. I mean, they know they should take more exercise. Exactly. Maybe they know they should get more sleep. Maybe they know they should eat better. They know they yeah. should take maybe take on less and deal better with stress. But it ain't so easy to make the changes, is it? That's <laughs> exactly right. That's <laughs> exactly right. And that and that um, divergence that you described there, the divergence mm. between knowing what we ought to be doing mm. and putting it into practice, that that's the space in which health coaches are most effective. And that, in fact, that's the space in which any coach is most effective uh, to, to be able to support someone to uh, to bridge that gap. And what, one of the important things that it's worth um saying out loud here, Mark, is that is that health coaching is certainly not about getting people to do something. So uh, coaching is, is not something that, that uh, aims to make someone do the exercise, perhaps in the back of their minds, they have an inkling they should be doing or make someone eat a, a diet. Um, it's a process that invites someone to examine their own values, to uncover their motivations, to understand more about themselves, and ultimately to make a choice that best aligns with the underlying values that they have at that moment. Now, that of course means that there's 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 always a risk. There's there's a risk, for example, that in working with someone uh, who is smoking and has been told uh, a lot of times that they ought to give up smoking, that there's a risk, of course, that that if we take a coaching approach. Um, that person might come out the other side of coaching and, and say, you know what, on balance, I've decided I want to keep smoking. Smoking better fits for me with what I think are the, the things that matter to me in my life right now. And one of the things that we need to do as coaches and health practitioners um, is 
in a sense, be okay with those choices that people may make, mm. even if they're not aligned with what we believe is best practice or what we believe is the, the healthy choice or the healthy option and so on. Well, and that's, a, that's a challenge. It is. And that one of the things we see um, in primary care and general practice is that people can have different views about different health behaviours at different moments in time. And this yeah. feeds into what's known as the wheel of change. Yeah. So if I see somebody who's a smoker, you know, one of the interesting things is to assess where that person is at. You know, are they are they a contented smoker or are they potentially considering change? Yeah. And, you know, that can change over time. And so one of the great things in general practice is you get repeated opportunities to influence mm. somebody yeah. in a positive direction. And maybe when that person is ready, then maybe you can move in with, with more appropriate advice. Yeah. And that, that perspective is so valuable, Mark, the, the idea that there are repeated opportunities. This is this is not a once only chance to uh, to do something. And in fact, the idea that our motivations may shift across time is central to the idea of behavioural change, because if that if that weren't able to happen, then no one, of course, would ever make any change whatsoever. We would just stay where we are. So th th this idea of, of being able to approach the same person with openness and curiosity each time you see them is central to coaching. In fact, one of the one of the uh, illustrations that was given to me many many years ago when I was uh, training as a as a psychologist and a family therapist mm -hmm. was the idea of the idea of a Polaroid snapshot. So you're you're when someone describes something to you, when a patient or a client describes a, a value or a motivation or a belief or a situation that they're in, we're best to treat that as a Polaroid of that moment and and not one of those portraits that that hangs up in the the family home and endures for you know decades and decades and decades we're best to think of it as just what that person is experiencing and describing at that moment in time yeah i love the stoic philosopher simon and i'm just thinking in real time about heraclitus who said you know no man ever steps in the same water twice yeah <laughs> it's not the same water yeah. and it's not the same, same person water. that's yeah. what you've just paraphrased there <laughs> yeah yeah exactly right exactly right yeah that, that change is constant simon can i ask you you know mm. in your experience what makes health coaching interventions likely to succeed mm, that's a great question um there are there are many many ways to answer that of course and and probably many different perspectives on it i'll, I'll share with you what i think is central to coaching mm -hmm. um and that is that for me coaching is fundamentally about the creation the development and the maintenance of a relationship with another human being. And when we do that to the best extent that we can, when we're focused on the, the creation of a genuine relationship of, of meaning and of understanding and, and wanting to step into the shoes of the other person, when we do that, behavioural change is almost like a an output of that. It's almost like a consequence of that. It's almost an unavoidable result of doing that. It's one of the ways I've come to think about coaching more, more recently. 
we, we can get too focused, I think, on the idea of changing behaviour or trying to change behaviour or, or, or being a motivator of change and all, all sorts of phraseologies that we might use there. Um, for me, the thing that works is the creation of a relationship in which my primary task is to set myself aside, to step into your world and to step into your experience as you describe it, to be curious about that, to listen to what you're telling me, to seek to understand what life is like as you live it. And from that point then to engage with you in a discussion about possibilities that might emerge in the future, things that might be different in the future. So, Mark, for me, relationship is the essence of of coaching. Um, It's a deeply, deeply human pursuit. Technology certainly makes a difference, and and I'm I'm sure you and and many of your listeners would know of the the absolute um, legion of of apps and and smartphone technologies and computer-based technologies and other things that we can use to enhance and support behavioural change. But at the bottom of it all, at the bottom of it all, I believe, sits relationship between one human being and another human being. Fantastic. So what you're really saying is, you know, seeking first to understand, building the relationship, seeing it through the other person's eyes. And then once that's done, looking at what change might mean for them. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And I suppose the other question then, Simon, you know, what are the main barriers to successful change in your experience? That's a great question too, Mark. I think one of the one of the areas of, of clinical work that I used to do a great deal of as a psychologist and coach was in the area of supporting people who uh, were about to have or who had had bariatric surgery, so surgery for, for weight loss. And a great deal of my health behaviour change and coaching experience came from that client group over uh, over a number of years. And I will say that for that group, one of the main barriers to change was shame, mm. uh, a sense a sense of shame uh, for for all sorts of reasons because there's. There's so much media about um, what we ought to look like and and how we ought to appear and what our what shape our bodies ought to be, but also because uh, as a group, people aiming to lose weight in that way and people who had um, ultimately approached a bariatric surgeon for uh, for advice had often had years, sometimes decades, and occasionally even a lifetime of feeling like they had failed and failed and failed in their efforts. And unfortunately, a lot of that failure had been exacerbated by the way in which other practitioners had gone about um, trying to help them. So so by by simply setting uh, goals and not understanding the values that might be underneath or by taking charge of setting the goals themselves as a practitioner and, and not seeking to work with a client to understand what, what a useful goal uh, might be for them. 
So I think for, for some people, shame is a big barrier to behavioural change. Um, I, I think, of course, we we, we can't um, we can't ignore um, we can't ignore social determinants of health uh, as a major barrier to um, to the, the the provision and the the distribution of healthcare uh, all over the world. Um, and that's probably a topic for a whole other, <laughs> whole other podcast episode. But uh, but I think that does um, that does play a significant role here. And I think sometimes to a barrier is simply the way in which healthcare practitioners uh, go about it. And I, and I will say that all healthcare practitioners, and I, I was one of them many years ago as a, as a psychologist, I, I marched out of, you know, university in 1998 or whatever it was with my, uh, with my, you know, psychology degree and, and, you know, a head full of knowledge about, about people and brains and all sorts of things. And, I believed that it was that knowledge that people were craving and and, and that people needed. Um, and so I set about doing what legions of, of healthcare practitioners have done, which is to dole out advice about about what people you know should be doing or ought to be doing, and so on. Um, I, I was fortunate in my professional journey to have some different input fairly early on, and that and that set me on a different pathway, um, you know, good, a good twenty or so years ago. But um, but that 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 belief that simply sharing expert knowledge is the way to behaviour change itself becomes mm-hmm. a barrier for people as well. You're dead right. I mean, as I see it, Simon, change starts on the inside, and I think you really hit on a really important point. The idea of emotional agility, the idea of of feeling good in yourself as a person and understanding that that's really probably a prerequisite to physical change in the outside world. And, you know, to mm-hmm. look at how you see things, as you said, you've mentioned the word values several times, which I think is fascinating mm-hmm. to know your mm-hmm. why, to connect to your values, to connect with who you are, why you want to uh, change for the better. And, uh, you know, I think that's really important to kind of understand that, that maybe for the person themselves, simply maybe being more self-compassionate, being kinder to to themselves and maybe being less harsh and less judgmental on themselves in their in their world uh, might be a real start. Absolutely. There there are lots of things, of course, which can can motivate people to change market can be um can be a desire to live to a ripe old age. Uh, it can be a desire to uh, to want to remain active to a ripe old age, to travel the world. It can be to play with grandchildren, to keep doing the job you're doing. All sorts of things can be motivations for us. Uh, and there's no particular right or wrong about any of those. I will say that there are some things that are definitely not motivations for long-term sustainable behavioural change, and they're things like shame like fear, um, like humiliation and so on, they can certainly provoke a short-term change. Um, Mark, when you and I, uh, you know, drive past a, uh, a, a police car with a speed camera attached to it, we do what every other driver in the world would do. We take a foot off the accelerator, slow down a little bit. Um, but, but what do we do after we've gone around the next bend? Well, often we just go back to returning to the same speed we were driving at before we saw the police car. Um, and, and that's that that's that external motivation of fear. So in in that in that moment we we change and shape our behavior. But there's there's nothing lasting about that. And very quickly we return to 
to the way to what we were doing just prior to that. Yeah, there was an old African proverb that said, "If you're running away from something in life, it means something is chasing you." Um, yeah, which I which I really liked that the idea that the real sustainable change should come from within. Um, is feedback important in the, in the coaching context, Simon? In your opinion? Yeah, that's a um, that's a great question, Mark. Um, and may I ask you a question here? When, when you use the word feedback, there, uh, what context or what what's what's the image that you have of feedback? My image of feedback in this context right now is is the idea of you know what gets measured gets improved, uh-huh, and, uh-huh. and some sort of a yeah. scale or a number or some sort of yeah. a graph showing where I started, where I am, maybe where I'm going. That yeah. sort of idea. Yeah, yeah. So in in the coaching approach that uh, that that uh, we teach at, at World Coaches, um, an appreciative perspective is is baked into the model. An appreciative inquiry um, comes largely or originally from the work of David Cooperider in the nineteen eighties uh, in the US. And Cooperider still says to this day, um, very similar to what you just said, um, um, what we appreciate appreciates. Um, and so, so taking the time to to look at not not what's not working, but what is working, to understand not what the problem is, but what are the strengths, what are the resources, what are the things that are actually working well for the person at the moment, itself is a valuable source of feedback. Outside of that, um, coaching is grounded in the idea of. Uh, developing uh, an image uh, or, if you like, a vision, which can be words or or literally a a picture for where someone wants to be, calling to mind, evoking that idea of what they want things to be like for themselves. That in itself starts to create an accountability because now we have a point of reference out in front of us. Uh, And, in fact, to to link this into motivational interviewing, uh, some of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with MI, it's the existence of that vision and the knowledge of where we are at this point in time that creates what's called in motivational interviewing the discrepancy. It's the discrepancy between where I am and where I want to be. The presence of that discrepancy is actually very important. It's like um, if you if you if you remember uh, high school physics and and high school chemistry, we we all learnt about uh, potential energy. If if I hold an object um, above the ground, you know, at, at sort of my arm's height above the ground, it ha- it has a great deal of potential energy, and if I let it go, it will fall to the ground. Uh, that that potential energy will become kinetic energy and maybe sound energy as well. If that object is sitting on the ground, in other words, if it's if it's already at a place that it feels okay, there is zero potential energy. It's not going to do anything. And so for me, this idea of discrepancy is the idea of how much potential for change is there for this person. Mm-hmm. And, and the greater the discrepancy, the more excited I get about working with someone because for me that represents, um, you know, a, a great deal more potential, a great deal more possibility that, that could exist for this person. And I suppose, Simon, it starts really with knowing yourself and knowing who you really are and 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 who you want to be in the world. And, you know, I think honesty and relationship and a commitment to be true to your values, as you said, is, is really, really so important. 
Simon, in, yeah. in terms of, mm. you know, actions speak louder than words, how do you stay healthy mm. yourself? <laughs> Great question, Mark. <laughs> um, I, I'm, you know, as 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 someone who's been uh, studying and working in the field of of lifestyle medicine for um, for several years now, those those principles of lifestyle medicine uh, really matter to me, and and I aim to uh, I aim to live them out in my life. Uh, so as as far as diet goes, uh, I, I eat um, I eat largely a, a plant diet. Um, and it's worth it's worth uh, pausing here for a moment, Mark, and saying uh, that that the word diet itself comes from a Greek word, dietne, which means way of life. Um, so so our diet is literally our way of life. It's something that we can sustain day in day out that leads us to where we want to be. So I so I aim to eat like that. I don't, for example, exclude all oils uh, from my food. I, I love splashing some uh, some olive oil around. Sometimes I go go crazy and I fry some fish. Um, but generally speaking, uh, I eat vegetables, pulses, beans, lentils, seeds, nuts, grains, and, and so on. Um, as far as exercise goes, I aim to be uh, active for as many hours of the day as I possibly can. Uh, so that's you know typically around uh, 14, 15 hours. Uh, I'm aiming to be physically active, which doesn't mean exercising. That just means moving, moving my body. Uh, and then on top of that, I aim to exercise daily as well, which might be brisk walking. It might be uh, one of my favourite things at the moment is uh, Pilates classes. Uh, I go to reformer Pilates classes, which I absolutely love. Social connection is very important. Um, taking the time to savour um, savour daily experiences is is very, very important for me as well. And the big learning for me in the last few years, Mark, has been um, has been sleep. If you, if, if you and I had been doing this, interview you know 10 years ago I, I would have brushed you off and said ah oh, you can sleep when you're dead um and, and of course the sad reality is that if we uh, don't focus on getting good sleep then that day may well come around much sooner than we anticipate so these days i have a different view of sleep and i uh, i actually love to uh to be in bed relatively early uh and to aim to have an eight hour window mm -hmm. in which i can be asleep and when i do that oh i feel i feel the difference the next mm -hmm. day absolutely feel the difference. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more, you know, on, on, on what you're talking about. But in terms of sleep, you know, it, it really is such a a valuable elixir for yeah. for, for vitality. Yeah. You know, Benjamin yeah. Franklin said, you know, early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy and wise. But I think sleep yeah. is such a keystone habit. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I think it's one of I think it's one of our health challenges, Mark. I mm. think, you know, we, we, we all live now in a world that is so busy, so full of stimulation. There's so mm. many things to do. We have so much of that stimulation at our fingertips by way of, uh, you know, cell phones and mobile phones and so on. Um, it, it's very easy to stay switched on and aroused uh, for way more hours in the day than is actually good for us. So having the discipline to um, to walk away from that. In fact, one, one of my disciplines, Mark, is that I I set my set all my electronic devices to do not disturb from 5 p.m. to 8 a.m. every day. I can choose to look at them if I wish, but I don't get I don't get things dinging at me. That's fantastic. I have a traffic light idea for for devices, green, orange and red. And like what you said, green up to six o'clock in the evening mm -hmm. between six and eight thirty 
So green means unlimited. Six mm-hmm. to eight thirty is orange. Be very careful. Yeah. And and after eight thirty or nine, red zone. You don't want to be near those things. Absolutely. Turn them off. Plug them absolutely. into your kitchen. And and for God's sake, keep them out of your bedroom. Yeah, absolutely. The really interesting thing is, Mark, that, that when I first started doing this, which is it was sometime during the pandemic, I remember starting to do this because the, during the pandemic, of course, one of the experiences was that we were all switched on all the time because mm. we're working from home and we're on Zoom meetings all the time. And, and so on. So that, that's when I developed this uh, this particular habit. One of the things that I noticed initially uh, was an anxiety in myself about, about mm. missing something important, but it didn't take very long before that disappeared. And Interesting. I feel I feel completely okay about simply not being available after a certain time of day and not having my mind being drawn to those mm. things after a certain time of day. I think it's so incredibly important for all of us to be able to switch off, disconnect, have proper downtime and yeah. and be able to really recharge from the daily stresses. And you rightly said life has become so busy. There's so much going on. And stress, of course, in itself is neither good nor bad, but we you must mm. recharge from the stress. And mm. that takes a mm. bit of time. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Simon, can I ask you for our listeners um, mm. three take homes for a resilient mind? So <laughs> the, great, the great thing about this, Mark, is that is that there's a there's a bag that has about, you know, 25,000 ideas in there that we could uh, we could draw on. But if, if I were to pick if I were to pick the top three, mm. number one, I would say, have people you connect to. Certainly have people who care about you and also have people whom you care about. And, and they can be the same people or they can be different people. But that idea of being in the midst of a network of social connections makes us so much more resilient. And the image that I often have in my mind with that, Mark, is if I asked you to hold your two arms out in front of you and I dropped a 30-kilo bag of sand and cement into your arms from six feet up, um, you'd probably be seeing the shoulder surgeon the next day. But if you interlocked your arms or your hands with maybe three or four or five other people and then I did the same thing, it would almost be unremarkable. You almost wouldn't notice the impact of it because you would be sharing that load so so easily easily and so evenly among you. And for me, that's what social connection and social relationship does. That would be number one. Number two for resilience, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put my friend sleep back in there and say <laughs> say I think I think sleep makes such a difference here. It makes a difference to us mentally, it makes a difference to us physically, it makes a difference, it certainly makes a difference to to our physical functioning uh, the next day. And it makes a longer term difference to us as well to to get great sleep. Makes us much more able to take a helpful perspective on a situation, to to see a situation for what it is and and to bring all our resources then to managing that situation, which is really what what resilience is about. So, uh, So social connection and sleep, uh, and the other one that I'm going to put in there is the idea of knowing where you're going and maybe even alongside of that, knowing why you're going there. And again, the the idea that comes to mind for me is, is actually a navigation idea from aviation and if, and if you like, um, sailing and maritime pursuits as well. In, in aviation, um, when you fly somewhere, you, you, you have a destination 
And in determining how you're going to get to that destination, you take account of all sorts of factors, you know, the, the winds, for example, and, and, uh, and the speed of the wind and the, uh, and, and the direction of the wind. And in doing that, you set a particular heading and you maintain that heading in order to be able to get where you're going. And the important thing about knowing where you're going is that when something unexpected happens, if you have to change course for some reason, if you have to change course because of the weather, if you have to change course because you need to stop and get more fuel, if you have to change course because of some misadventure along the way, knowing where you're going will ultimately help you to realign with what to do to keep getting there. And so that idea of having a, if you like, almost a almost a beacon or a, or a lighthouse or something like that, that that we're aiming towards, for me, is one of the things that that helps me ride out the um, the was it Shakespeare who talked about slings and arrows? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, the the idea that we can we can get past those things that challenge us when we have this big picture in mind of of where we're going. Knowing your North Star with the yeah. slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. very well put, Simon. Exactly. And Simon, finally for you, what's the meaning of life? <laughs> oh well. Wow. Um all the uh, all the big questions, uh, all the big questions tonight. Oh wow, the meaning of life. I, I don't know that I can share with you a generic meaning of life. I can certainly share with you a personal meaning of life, which I'm very happy to uh, very happy to do. The meaning that I carry with me in my life, the the thing that is really, really important to me, and is that North Star, if you like, that we were just talking about, is to make a small difference to as many people as I possibly can across my lifetime. So I don't feel an urgency uh, or even a capacity for that matter to be able to make an enormous life-changing difference to any one person. But I do feel like it's within my capacity through the work that I do, through the conversations that I have, through the teaching that I do and so on, to be able to make a, a small but appreciable difference to people who are in my immediate orbit and for that difference to be great enough that it might then shape those people in their conversations with people in their orbit as well and in that concentric kind of idea uh, over the course of my lifetime to, to have a sense that I'm making a small, a small but measurable difference to a great number of people in the world. A, ri- a ripple effect of positive change. Exactly. Yeah, and that's what that's what drives me, Mark. That's that's what uh, that that's what gets me out of bed every day. The 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 feeling that that I want to do that. I don't have any desire to to have a headstone with some you know significant engraving on it about who I was and where I lived. But but do you know, two hundred years from now, I would love to know that someone is having a conversation with someone they know and buried deep inside that conversation is a kernel of something that, you know, perhaps once came from something that I happened to say in passing to someone else. And and if that were possible, um, that would make me very, very happy. Well, I think that's a wonderful way to end our conversation, Simon. It's been wonderful having you in the doctor's chair you know, keep leading, keep inspiring, keep appreciating others in the world of health coaching, lifestyle medicine and positive psychology. 
Simon Matthews, thank you so much. Thanks, Matt. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkrow.com.